One of the most debilitating things about it is that it's cyclical. So it comes around month in, month out. A lot of them will say, my period arrives and I feel myself again, or maybe a couple of days afterwards, they feel themselves again. And then they kind of think, did it really happen? Was it really that bad? And then you start doubting yourself and you go to a medical practitioner and some doctors haven't heard of PMDD, for example, and will say, well, I'm not really sure things you might have mild PMS or, you know, things like that. And so there's a bit of not intentional, I think, but medical gaslighting that can go on with severe forms of premenstrual disorder. And also to have a diagnosis of PMDD, there shouldn't really be any other underlying mental health or psychological diagnosis, but often they come hand in hand because if you struggle with severe premenstrual symptoms month in, month out, you are going to become depressed because it feels quite hopeless because you feel whatever you do, you feel horrendous. And so even if you do feel okay for two weeks, three weeks a month, you know this and it is exhausting. I've had them say they just can't face going through it every month. And so it's not uncommon to have kind of concurrent depression or anxiety alongside those changes. So when I see women, I often say, well, yeah, you look at their notes. So sometimes there's a referral letter or they sometimes refer themselves in, but they will have on their notes that they have depression or anxiety. But it's always important to say, okay, what came first? Because often it's the depression and anxiety have arisen after their mood changes have just been going on for several years. <laughs> and it's it's like a feeling of hopelessness because whatever they do, they find themselves in the situation. But there's definitely help and advice out there. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to season two of Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. All the stories shared here are from the heart. These are real conversations and may be triggering, so please listen with discretion. Today's episode covers feelings of suicide. We will also signpost you to help in the show notes. Thank you. Today's guest is Dr. Hannah Short. Hannah is a GP specialist in menopause premature ovarian insufficiency, or POI, and premenstrual disorders. She is recognised by the British Menopause Society, the International Association for Premenstrual Disorders, and the National Association for Premenstrual Syndromes. Hannah has particular interest in induced menopause, premature ovarian insufficiency, and hormone sensitivity disorders. She is a member of the IAPMD Clinical Advisory Board and the Surgical Menopause Advisory Committee and has previously worked as a volunteer doctor for the DAISY Network. They are a charity dedicated to girls and women diagnosed with POI. Hannah has personal experience of premature surgical menopause, which drives her passion and informs her work. She is co-author of The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Blue Mum Days. Thank you, Vicky. Nice to be here. First of all, can you explain to us what POI is for those of us who, who aren't familiar with it? So premature ovarian insufficiency or POI is, is the now the preferred name for early menopause below the age of 40, but it's not quite as straightforward as that. So menopause normally indicates like a permanent state, whereas, you know, your ovaries are no longer going to function, you're not capable of conceiving. In actual POI, there's fluctuating ovarian activity, but there is reduced fertility in these girls and women who are affected. And you can have menopausal symptoms and issues relating to estrogen deficiency. It's also related to early menopause, which means your periods are much more likely to stop. But generally, it's used as an umbrella term for anybody who falls into that category or their periods have stopped or they've had their ovaries removed below the age of 40. Sorry, there's not a very succinct answer to it because it's it's, it's not a very, really straightforward explanation, but I hope that explains it a bit. Thank you. And how common is this, would you say, in the UK? So we used to think it was um, one in 100 women below the age of 40, but recent estimates suggest it may be up to three to four percent of women on a global level. I mean, the percentages are greater in the 30 to 40 age group than they would be in the 20 to 30 or under 20. But there are some teenagers and even kind of tweens who can be affected. Their periods may not start. so They may never have normal ovarian function. Oh, my goodness. So actually, that's a lot more common than... I thought it would be. Yeah. And yet it's it's not talked about or very understood what it no, is. 
It isn't at all. And I think, you know, women are constantly told they can be too young for menopause or, I mean, the, the words premature menopause and PY are used intermittently, even though they're not always the same thing. But essentially the, the health risks and the concerns are very similar. And it often means that if it's not recognised, girls and women don't get the treatment and the support they need. So yeah, we need to raise awareness, basically. It's it's amazing you say that because I know so many of my peers and friends who are feeling like they're going through perimenopause mm-hmm. and you know in their mid-40s they're being told oh no you're still too young for that yeah. and yet you kind of know when things are different. But that's it's crazy really that we're telling women they're too young in their mid-40s because any age after the age of 45 if you actually stop your period so you're fully menopausal is considered within the normal age range and you can your perimenopause can start 10 years before your final period so it's not unusual to have perimenopausal symptoms in your late 30s that's not to say women will always need treatment or medical support but it's not unusual and perimenopause is different to POI and this is where it can get a little bit complicated but yeah we shouldn't be telling women that I mean we've got guidelines if women have or they're concerned they're having menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms are over 45 we don't worry about doing things like blood tests um, we just treat them clinically but under under 45 we, we normally would do blood tests to rule out other conditions and certainly under the age of 40 so everyone should be taken seriously really. Thank you for that. And obviously, gosh, we could do a whole a whole episode on its own on perimenopause and and the menopause. But one of the reasons that I wanted to speak to you today for this is is because there is so much about women's hormones and we're so affected by hormone fluctuations. And that can really affect things like mood. Hmm. If we stay with POI for a moment, what sort of treatments are available for anybody going through that? So. In POI, if you've got loss or reduced ovarian function, you're not producing normal amounts of estrogen, which is really important for things like your bone health and your heart health and your brain health and also your general well-being. So first line treatment is hormone replacement therapy to bring the levels back up to where they should be at the premenopausal age. And there are guidelines for this. So that's that. That's really what we should be doing, whether or not a girl or woman has symptoms. So not everybody will struggle with estrogen deficiency or menopausal symptoms, but then maybe their periods have stopped. And if other causes have been ruled out, then that's something we need to look at. I mean, there will be some women who have a POI or entered a premature menopause because of cancer or something like that, which means that sometimes that's not really what we'd be offering if it's an estrogen-dependent cancer but each case has to be viewed on its own merits and we look at risks and benefits and there are other treatments we can use to support women who can't take HRT. So My mum, bless her, had breast cancer that mm. was related to HRT 23 years ago and obviously HRT is is changed a lot since then but I, I must admit sort of with my own experience going through menopause I've always been wary of taking it because of my mum's situation mm-hmm. if somebody was considering taking HRT what would you say to them in terms of its efficacy and its safety these days well in terms of POI there's no increased risks you know if you haven't had an estrogen dependent cancer there's no increased risk because all you're doing is replacing the hormones that would naturally be there if your ovaries were functioning as we would like them to do so. So there's no increased risk of things like breast cancer, and it reduces your risk of things like heart disease, dementia, osteoporosis, diabetes. So that it does a lot of good health prevention as well, and it's really important for health. In women of natural menopause age, the benefits usually outweigh the risks as well. And there's a lot of hype around the breast cancer um, risk because It's not as black and white as HRT causes breast cancer. We don't actually have good evidence that it causes breast cancer. It may be what we call a promoter of estrogen positive breast cancer and it can encourage the cells growth if they're already there. But it's not like smoking where we know that actually smoking damages the DNA and can trigger cancer in the lungs, for example. And there are other things that are far more likely to increase your risk of breast cancer, such as not exercising at all. So, you know, doing two and a half hours of exercise a week hugely reduces your risk of breast cancer, whether or not you take HRT. If you're overweight or obese, that that puts you in the higher risk category, far more risky than if you take a small dose of HRT. Drinking more than two units, so a glass of wine every night, again, is more risky than taking HRT. So it's looking at every person and seeing do their benefits outweigh the risks? You know, do they need HRT to help manage symptoms, to reduce long term health risks? 
I'm not saying everybody should be on it at all, but I think a lot of women are unnecessarily scared of HRT and it can be a real game changer in terms of how well women feel and can actually reduce the risk of harm later in life. So when there were the big scares around 20 years ago around HRT, a lot of women stopped HRT overnight, doctors stopped prescribing it. And actually, if you look at the statistics, rates of heart disease and stuff went up hugely after that. Obviously, we don't say start HRT to reduce your risk of that unless you fall into the POI category. You would normally prescribe it if there are symptoms and and things like that as well. But there there were harms associated with that mass stopping of of HRT. So yeah, for most women, the benefits outweigh the risks if, if it's needed for them. Thank you. That's so beautifully put. And funnily enough, I'm... I'm going to get straight on the blower to my GP then after this, see if I can get rid of the <laughs> night sweats and the, the hot flushes. Um, but thank you. That's that's really put my mind at rest in, in terms of looking into HRT. I mean, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about things like PMDD and PME. Mm-hmm. And I would love to speak to you about postpartum rage postnatal mm-hmm. rage or, or the effect of hormones on feelings of anger but first of all do you mind telling us about what brought you into this area this specialism mm-hmm. I mean I've always been interested in in women's health and I've always been interested in like psychology and psychiatry and when I went to medical school I wasn't quite sure what I would end up doing initially I did do psychiatry training and then I was slightly frustrated with the way the services worked and then I felt I'd have more of an impact in general practice and so I went back to do my GP training and I think it was in general practice that I started noticing I don't know so many symptoms that women came to see us about especially as a female GP there was an element of of hormonal influence even if they wasn't directly they were consulting me about and I've also always had my own issues so I've always struggled with periods I had terrible painful periods from when they started when I was 13 I'd missed school I missed weeks at university I've lost a job because of it because I went to medical school late not only when I was 27 and prior to that I I worked in kind of administrative and then finance roles I lost a job in London because I was an unreliable employee and because I had to call in because I was so debilitated by my symptoms and I was diagnosed with endometriosis when I was in my early 20s And then together with that, I also struggled with premenstrual mood changes, which were quite significant and got worse as I entered medical school and my junior doctor training, which can be quite brutal because you don't have a regular routine. You're working crazy hours. You don't eat well. You don't sleep well. We basically don't do anything we tell our patients to do because the rotor makes it impossible. And I think that just made everything so much worse. But I used to have incredible anxiety and really crashing low mood before my period arrived and everything felt quite unmanageable especially because I had irregular periods I never had regular cycles so I couldn't even predict when I was going to feel okay and most of the time I didn't feel okay because premenstrually psychologically I struggled and then when my period arrived physically I struggled so it's probably only a handful of days a month where I felt relatively okay I tried various treatments. I mean, I had several surgeries for the endometriosis, which were successful in the short term, but ultimately didn't resolve the pain. I tried alternative medicines and, you know, complementary therapies, including acupuncture, Reiki, homeopathy. I I mean, everything changing my diet. And I only kind of got minimal relief at best. And ultimately, it was recommended that I have my ovaries removed and a hysterectomy. I'd obviously tried a lot of the medical treatments like different contraceptive pills and stuff well before that and painkillers and things. And so that's what happened at 35. I had a premature surgical menopause. So all of my reproductive organs were removed and then plunged straight into surgical menopause. And it was that that really opened my eyes, although I was well aware of issues. But when I realized how poorly we managed women in menopause, particularly Those of us who don't have a natural menopause at the natural age of, you know, mid 40s upwards, I suppose it ignited my passion. And I thought, well, what what can I do? And it's just developed from there. I've done further training in menopause and work around in the premenstrual disorders space. And yeah, (laughs) there we go. Oh, my goodness. What an experience that you, you went through. I mean, it's wonderful for the women that you treat that you took such a negative personal experience and created something so positive and compassionate out of that. Are you happy to talk about how you felt going through something so extreme at such an early age? 
Um, to, to be honest, I felt so ill before the surgery that I was pretty desperate. And I, I actually wrote a letter. I found it the other day and then I felt slightly mortified when I read it. But a letter I wrote to my gynecologist basically begging him to give me the surgery because I naively thought having the surgery would put me in a position where I felt like a normal in inverted commas woman and I would have some add back hormones because I'm lucky that I didn't have any reason not to have the hormones and I just kind of go on my way I knew it would take a while to get my energy back and to feel well but I didn't anticipate how difficult it would be post-op and although I've never regretted the surgery because I'm lucky that my pain pretty much disappeared with that and my premenstrual changes you know the mood changes obviously I wasn't having periods I felt a lot better and more stable mood wise I struggled with absorbing HRT for example I felt really quite unwell from the physical menopause symptoms that I had Um, eventually that was sorted you know I worked with a good gynecologist and my GPs were supportive and eventually found a regime but I and it also forced me to look at things like diet and lifestyle and actually do the things that I knew would help me intellectually but I I hadn't really been putting into practice because that's been fundamental and it's only further down the line that I kind of things like not having children kind of really hit me because at the time I thought well I'm too I don't know I'm too unwell to even consider having a child and I found that's the hardest thing for me in the latter years and it's not so much or at least not always not physically having a child but it's also the way you're treated as a woman without children I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, and I think this applies to whether you are somebody who considers themselves childless or if you're somebody who's child free, you are treated differently. And I don't think people appreciate that unless they've had that experience. So that's been my hardest thing for me in recent years, I think, and feeling quite isolated. Yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying, because I know friends who have chosen not to, to become mothers you know, it doesn't mean that they're callous and it doesn't mean that they hate children. It's just that they've decided for them. It's not how they want to go on to, Mm. you know, to live their lives. And they are very much treated differently and castigated because of that decision. And I mean, it must have been incredibly hard as well. Like, you know, I, I find it hard enough having gone through menopause when, my friends and I are all a similar age and we're mm. all going through it together and going, oh my God, how how come our mums never talked about all of this? It's such a ball ache. But to go through that independently and at the age of 35, and I'd imagine if it's a surgical menopause, is that more brutal? Is that more extreme? That must yeah. have been a very difficult thing to go through when you're still so very young. I mean, yes, it was. I suppose I had the advantage over some women in that I I understood. And like, this this isn't always explained to women when they go through certain procedures, what's going to happen. And I think because I am a doctor and I'd really researched it and I was lucky that I had a a very compassionate and knowledgeable clinician kind of guiding me through it. I was aware of certain things and I knew that it could be brutal. But because you have your ovaries removed and you go from being premenopausal with premenopausal hormone levels over to being surgically menopausal and having, you know, drop a huge drop in your levels right overnight. But I was prepared in that I was given HRT straight away. Often women are told whatever age they are, oh, you just wait a few months, you might not need it, which should never be the case because I think your body almost goes into like a form of shock because you're a moved part of the endocrine system. And it can, even in women who've actually been through a natural menopause, even as somebody who's 52, whose period stopped three years ago, if for some reason they need their ovaries removed and they, they, they go into actually surgical menopause, they will notice a difference most of the time because the ovaries don't become non-functional after menopause. They're still producing small amounts of hormones. And we think that they do much more than that as well. But we're, there's, there's been lack of research as there often has been in women's health. So, yeah, it, it's, it creates a huge change and it, and it, it really was kind of tri- challenging. And I do remember having a surge of, I suppose it was been an adrenaline surge, like a couple of days after surgery, which I think a lot of women describe. And it it did feel like everybody was going, what the hell has just happened? And I, I did think, um, I, I felt like I was going to have a panic attack and then things kind of calmed down and um it it was it was challenging but I knew that it was going to be difficult and I do worry more for women who don't have that knowledge or understanding because they haven't been given it and it hasn't been explained clearly to them because I think women need to know 
it's not the same as natural menopause. We shouldn't treat it the same. You'll always be in surgical menopause. You don't get through it. It's not like with natural menopause, often things improve over months to years. And if women are on HRT, most people won't take it lifelong. Some may need to for various reasons, but most don't. In surgical menopause, you nearly always need to, or you may wish to. Um, but because it is a hormone, a true hormone deficiency, it's not a natural transition. And I think natural menopause takes several years for your hormones to kind of levels fall. And yet in surgical menopause, things just literally drop off a cliff overnight. So, Wow. Yeah. So what, what sort of symptoms were you getting then through the surgical menopause? Or was it slightly better because you were on HRT straight away? So it wasn't as extreme. Well, I didn't really absorb it straight away. So I was taking a de- what I thought was a de- decent dose of HRT and it was a gel I was applying through my skin and I was only absorbing minimal amounts. So I've never really struggled with the hot flushes and vasomotor symptoms, so like night sweats and things. Very occasionally you get the odd night sweat and there's around 20% of women who don't get those symptoms. And I think often they're missed because people assume you have to have those symptoms to be perimenopausal or menopausal. It was more things that I had severe joint pain, like really severe joint pain, terrible insomnia, heart palpitations, quite severe dryness in terms of skin. My skin also changed. I kind of developed rosacea because you have a lot of autoimmune or immune system changes with, with, you know, when you're thrown into menopause. And that was really upsetting for a while because I just had awful rash on my face and nothing seemed to kind of calm it down. Terribly kind of dry eyes. I would have waves of anxiety but it's something I've lived with most of my life um but they could be more extreme and I think that that may be kind of part of the same thing that goes on when women have hot flushes but you just don't have that hot flush at the end because hot flushes are generally associated with a surge in adrenaline and cortisol and often women will say that they feel a wave of panic before a hot flush comes up that doesn't happen to everybody but there's something going on there with that as well so yes I I would get those symptoms um bladder symptoms like needing to rush for the loo or constantly feeling like I'm getting the beginning of a UTI but nothing ever being there oh headaches yeah quite severe migraines and headaches as well that sounds like the whole jamboree of (laughs) (laughs) who'd be a woman I know I know (laughs) Um, it wasn't fun and and, and thank you so much for being so open and talking so bravely about about your symptoms because I'd imagine there are so many listeners now who are listening to this and going wow finally I feel seen and heard because of what they're going through do you mind me asking you did you go through a period of grief about not being able to be a biological mother or is it something that you felt you you came to terms with quickly I think I have definitely had some feelings, I suppose I would describe as grief, but to be honest, a lot of it was more to do with feeling like I'd lost a lot of what should have been my healthy youth to illness and to my hormones, because I just think back to my late teens and early 20s, and I was somebody who had to go, you know, night out, I'd go home because I was in absolute agony, or I was so fatigued and you know, I missed out on a kind of adventure sports holiday that I'd planned with those of friends. And I had to stay at home because I just couldn't move because of the pain with my endometriosis. So things like that, I think I grieve more in some ways because I didn't have, it's not like I look back at my 20s and think, oh, I was young, free. I mean, I know what everybody is. There's plenty of people who are dealing with far worse things, but that's what I struggled with. And also the fact that I would never have those years back. The grief around children, I mean, I suppose I was never, I was always slightly ambivalent about being a mum. It was never something I thought I have to have children. And so it surprised me somewhat that like, as time has gone on, I felt a bit more grief around that, but it's sporadic. And I think some of it's to do more with having the choice taken away from me. So people say, well, you chose to have your ovaries removed, but it didn't really feel like I had a choice. (laughs) So... um, and I'm lucky that my husband didn't want children or at least is not upset by not having children. And so I had, because I, I, that would have been difficult, I think, if he had been desperate for us to have biological children. And we have two cats who <laughs> we love to bits. And I know they're not the same as, you know, biological human children, but I don't know. It's just lovely to have them around and and things. It's, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to answer it really, because I think there are lots of benefits to life without children, but I think... I don't know, it's hard to compare the two lives, isn't it? Because all of us will only live one, if you say to me, you either have children or you don't have children. And I think they're just different paths. And there are 
benefits and disadvantages to both. And I think I now try and frame it and think, well, what's the benefit? You know, I, I am more flexible. I can make different decisions that I wouldn't have been able to make if I hadn't had children. But occasionally it really hits me and that seems to come out of nowhere. So I don't really know what that's about. But... <laughs> I can really relate as well. You were talking about your grief at not having those youthful years, mm. you know, those carefree years of going out because certainly speaking from my own experience of postnatal depression and also from a lot of the incredible guests that I've spoken to during the course of this podcast is a sense of grief and loss about the early years of motherhood mm. that we felt or certainly what we perceived it should have been like yeah. versus the reality and how how dark it was you know certainly for this first year of Stanley my son's life and my god I love that little boy so much but it was the worst year of my life without a doubt and I still get a sort of pang sometimes on his birthdays and mm. um I know one of my other guests Christine felt exactly the same that sort of grief of what what it should have been like but again it's that sort of perception isn't it but yeah. I think it's I think it's okay for us to grieve things and I think it's probably good to have those feelings and let them out rather than bottle them up and it sounds like you had a very difficult time and I think unfortunately so many women do don't they and I think women are sold a lie about a lot of stuff in life it's only in recent years people are starting to talk more openly and I think this is where there's the power of things like podcasts and social media I mean there's a lot of downsides to social media but I think the fact that it can connect people who have similar experiences whereas otherwise people would have been kept in the dark and felt alone for so much longer I think that's brilliant so I mean that's one of the reasons I chose to I suppose be open about my own experience even as a clinician because some doctors warned me against it but I I just think well doctors are just human we're not special because we trained as doctors we all have similar experiences in terms of you know our emotions and feelings and and everything else so it's, it's misinformation to think doctors are never sick <laughs> or, you know, not affected by the same things that we treat our patients for. Yeah, it's funny. We sort of tend to put doctors on pedestals and it takes a lot of bravery for you to come forward and sort of admit to having something like anxiety. But it's incredibly life affirming to know that everybody gets affected and it's indiscriminate it doesn't matter who you are or what you do for a living, you know, and it's it's part of being human. Definitely. Can you explain to me what some of the, the premenstrual disorders are? Because one of the reasons I got in touch with you was because I recently found out about PMDD mm -hmm. and PME. Maybe if we talk about PMDD first. Mm -hmm. And I know it's certainly something that I could relate to and probably my mum. So if you're listening, hi, mum, <laughs> I've listened to this bit. But I know that both of us felt terribly bleak and dark before our periods mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that that was a, a thing that it could be a medical condition yeah and I think again a lot of a lot of women just aren't aware of it again there's been more awareness in recent years with social media campaigns and things like that but I mean when I had my surgery it wasn't even termed PMDD and I, I do wonder if I had PME, which stands for premenstrual exacerbation of anxiety and things like that. But I was told I had a severe premenstrual disorder. And essentially, PMDD stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And it affects around five to 8% of women of menstruating age and also trans men. So anybody who's born with ovaries can be affected by this condition. And it's a condition of hormone sensitivity. So it's not that there's an imbalance of hormones, it's just that the brain reacts or overreacts to changes in hormone levels and has an abnormal response to normal hormonal changes such as the menstrual cycle. So I think a lot of women will have heard of PMS or PMT and that's kind of you know a lot of jokes are made about it although it's not particularly funny and I suppose that's the kind of milder sister really of PMDD and affects around 30 to 40 percent of women and that's where you kind of get mood and physical changes in the lead up to your period because I think most women will be aware that their body and brain changes throughout the menstrual cycle, but it wouldn't necessarily be in a problematic way. They might just be aware that, I don't know, their you know, vaginal discharge is slightly different at different points in the month, or their breasts are slightly fuller at one point in the month, or their sex drive is higher at one point. I mean, you know, they, they, they're aware of these changes. They don't 
constitute a clinical disorder but because we're cyclical creatures you you start to be aware of these changes but the women with PMS will say maybe their mood they will be a little bit more tearful or more likely to cry or have an argument with their partner or have headaches or breast pain in the lead up and they may go to their GP and ask for some advice and sometimes things like diet and lifestyle changes can make a big difference sometimes the contraceptive pill which evens out hormonal changes and things like that can help but these women who have PMS, they're not going to fall into the PMDD category, which is where there's serious disruption to your personal life. And PMDD, it's where the, it's it's more really a matter of degree. And if you feel that your symptoms are so debilitating, so, you know, profound depression, very severe anxiety, rage, mood swings, suicidal thoughts, um, you know, feelings of hopelessness and despair. It may be, you know, women feel they can't go to work or if they do go to work, they're constantly worried they're going to do something wrong and try and put on a brave face. But it's it's a real effort for them to kind of try and act normally, as it were. And then these symptoms, you know, they are significant. That's when you'd have this diagnosis of PMDD and they need to arise in the luteal phase of the cycle. So that's after ovulation, generally in the two weeks or one week before your period. And then they should get better when your period arrives. But um, we know that there are genetic links. So you said you felt that your mum may have struggled mm. with this as well. There are at least a couple of genes that have been identified, which seem to be more common, these in particular variants that are common in women with PMDD. And they kind of affect the way the brain processes uh, you know, estrogen and serotonin and also the breakdown products of progesterone as well, because all of these things play a role in our kind of brain chemistry at different points in the month. Wow, I can so relate to that because religiously about a week before my period would come, I would feel very hopeless, very, Mm. very dark and despairing. And sometimes that I didn't want to be around anymore. And even if I knew my period will probably come in a week's time, Mm -hmm. the the blackness would be so black that that wouldn't make a difference to me and it would feel like the reality was this and that you know I'm a terrible person or life is just terrifying and then within a week bam period would come and it would feel like resurfacing from being underwater yeah so yeah this wow I'd I'd love to know if, if this is resonating with any of my listeners and and to know that potentially it might be something that you could be helped with would be an incredible comfort to some. One of the most debilitating things about it is that it's cyclical. So it comes around month in, month out. A lot of them will say, my period arrives and I feel myself again, or maybe a couple of days afterwards, they feel themselves again. And then they kind of think, did it really happen? Was it really that bad? And then you start doubting yourself and you go to a medical practitioner and some doctors haven't heard of PMDD for example and we'll say well I'm not really sure things you might have mild PMS or you know things like that and so there's a bit of not intentional I think but medical gaslighting that can go on with severe forms of premenstrual disorder and also to have a diagnosis of PMDD there shouldn't really be any other underlying mental health or psychological diagnosis but often they come hand in hand because if you struggle with severe premenstrual symptoms month in month out you are going to become depressed because it feels quite hopeless because you feel whatever you do you feel horrendous and so even if you do feel okay for two weeks three weeks a month you know this and it is exhausting I've had them say they just can't face going through it every month and so it's not uncommon to have kind of concurrent depression or anxiety alongside those changes so when I see women I often say well yeah, you look at their notes. So sometimes there's a referral letter or they sometimes refer themselves in, but they will have on their notes that they have depression or anxiety. But it's always important to say, okay, what came first? Because often it's the depression and anxiety have arisen after their mood changes have just been going on for several years. <laughs> and it's it's like a feeling of hopelessness because whatever they do, they find themselves in the situation. But there's definitely help and advice out there. And there's a, the organisation that I'm on the clinical advisory board for, IAPMD, They have some fantastic patient information sections on there that talks about what this condition is, including all the treatment options and peer support. And they do awareness raising campaign. They've also got a section for professionals, so doctors and psychologists and scientists and things like that, and looking at all the latest research and evidence. Amazing. 
I mean, unfortunately, a third of people with PMDD do attempt to take their own life during a crisis. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so it is it is a mental health emergency in that sense. Mind have got something on their website about PMDD as well, because like you said, even if you have this awareness, that this is to do with a phase of your menstrual cycle when you're in it. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's always going to be like that. And people worry that other people around them are getting fed up with them, that they'd be better off without them. And it's, yeah, treatment is out there. I have to say it's not always easy to find the right thing immediately, but there are treatment guidelines that are accessible to all doctors. They may not always be aware they're there, but the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists do have treatment guidelines. And you start with quite basic low-level interventions, but they do go right up to, I suppose, the treatment I ultimately had, which was removal of the endocrine system or your reproductive endocrine organs. I wouldn't recommend that unless it's absolutely needed because there are other repercussions with that. But um, sometimes that's necessary. And I think one thing to say, though, is it's not a cure because you still have a hormone-sensitive brain. I think some women are told that if they have the surgery, that actually your ovaries are gone, so you should be fine. But actually the issue is in the brain. It's not the ovaries. It's the brain's response to the ovaries hormonal production. And so women need to be told that. It just becomes easier to manage if your ovaries have removed because you can then have some element of control if you have add back HRT, for example. But before you get to that stage, there are lots of other things you can do. And we use SSRIs, which are a form of antidepressant, but they can just be used in the luteal phase at a low dose. And to be honest, that, that's got the most evidence for efficacy for patients. And I've seen patients who have gone from feeling hopelessly suicidal every month to feeling like normal inverted commas, or they don't really notice their symptoms and they're much more manageable. Wow. But they don't have the side effects associated with long-term SSRI use. I personally often use very low doses because it works in a different way than when we're using it for, you know, things like clinical depression and things. But there's also hormonal treatments like certain contraceptive pills can be particularly helpful because that suppresses the natural ovarian cycle and gives you add back hormones. But the, the only problem with PMDD is women are hormone sensitive and sometimes don't get on well with the particular pills. And this is why you probably, if you are at the more extreme end of this group of women, then you probably need to someone with expert, see someone with expertise in that area and might need referral somewhere because it may be beyond the scope of your GP, for example. But there, there is the help up there. Yeah. It does, does sound <laughs> extremely complex. And I think when we spoke briefly before, Hannah, I mm. think, did you say 75% of women are felt to have issues with their hormones? No, I think I might have been saying that most women are aware that they have changes at some point, you know, around their cycle. But it depends. I mean, I, I I wouldn't surprise me if around three quarters of women had issues in some way relating to their hormones, whether it's PMS, PMDD, if it's perimenopause, or, you know, or is it more to do with endometriosis, which, you know, the symptoms are driven by hormonal changes. I mean, if we look at the stats for menopause, around 75% of women will have symptoms. So I think if a lucky quarter of women who don't really have symptoms they may be the ones who've been quite lucky throughout their reproductive life. So I think, yeah, if we're looking at it like that, it, it probably is around three quarters of women who will have some kind of issue relating to their reproductive lives and menstrual cycle. What was interesting in particular when you were talking earlier about PMS and PMT mm. and how dismissive women are made to feel if you're going through it. And it's the same with menopause. That's like, oh, she's going through the change or oh, she must be on having her monthly. And mm. it's always done in very dismissive terms and belittling terms when yeah. actually it does have a huge effect on you, Yeah, how you present and how you feel about yourself and everything on a regular basis. So you've talked about endometriosis. You know, it's a mm -hmm. term I understand, but I don't fully comprehend what's involved. Okay, so it's a condition where there are cells similar to the lining of the womb are found outside of the womb or uterus. So they can be found on the outside or on the fallopian tubes or the ovaries, but also within the pelvis or on the bladder or on the bowel. In some rare cases, they've been found in the lung or in the brain. And the problem is these cells act like the lining of the womb. And so they respond to menstrual hormonal changes and they bleed in response to hormonal changes as well. So you can get internal bleeding 
you know, if some women have coughed up blood during their periods, if they had endometriosis in their lungs, that is quite extreme. So most women wouldn't get that. But some women will, for example, when they open their bowels would pass blood and it's not because they've got piles or they've, you know, got a fish or something. It would be in time related to their period. You know, the internal pelvic organs can become fused together. So the bowel can get stuck to the uterus they can, and you get all these adhesions which are formed. So you can get what's called a frozen pelvis where there's lots of kind of like scar tissue in your pelvis. And obviously it can lead to repercussions of things like fertility issues, particularly if you've had big cysts or stuff on your ovaries. So yeah, pain is one of the most common symptoms, but it can can cause, you know, severe, you know, other symptoms like bloating and there's often associated mood changes, but I suspect that's more to do with the response to the physical symptoms. Although having said that, it, it's got inflammatory and we think autoimmune roots. And we know that the inflammation there has effects on the brain, which can trigger depression. So there may be something else going on there as well. I'm very lucky that I've never had chronic long-term pain, but I'd imagine that if you're in that situation, that also affects your mood because it's yeah. exhausting and it's, it gets you down living in pain like that. And for anybody that's struggling with endometriosis at the moment, is there anything that they can be doing to sort of help themselves or is it a question of going to see the GP first and foremost? I think if you're struggling with pain that's related to your periods or symptoms that are coming that that seem to be associated with your menstrual cycle, that yes, definitely go to your doctor. One good thing would be to track your symptoms to see if there is a pattern. Um, I mean, endometriosis is a slightly tricky one because you can't formally diagnose it really without having a laparoscopy, you know, of surgical procedure. Occasionally they do MRI scans and if you've got like a big cyst on your ovary, then that might be enough to say, yes, you've got this. But often you can have microscopic disease, which means that you wouldn't necessarily see it on a scan, but because of where it is, it could be triggering severe symptoms. So there's different grades of endometriosis. But weirdly, what would look, if you were looking at it from a surgical point of view, mild could have horrendous symptoms, but you could have severe endometriosis, but that may not be bothering you. But for example, could be found during investigation for fertility treatment, for example. Again, there are guidelines for doctors to help treat women with endometriosis and referral and and surgery isn't always needed because there are risks that come with surgery. You know, the contraceptive pill, again, can sometimes be helpful. Sometimes dietary changes, having a fiber-rich diet can be helpful because of changes to do with the gut microbiome and the way our body deals with the breakdown products of estrogen and things like that. Um, But it's hard. There are, you can be put into a chemical menopause to shut down your ovarian function and to see if that gives relief from the symptoms as well. I mean, I think if anybody is struggling with what they think may be endometriosis, look at Endometriosis UK. That's a UK charity and that's got lots of information and support there. But I think if you're having painful periods interfering with your life and doesn't just go away with a little bit of paracetamol or ibuprofen, that's not normal. Women are told it's normal. (laughs) You know, it's just period pain, but it isn't. And yes, treatment is kind of needed. But I suppose just don't be fobbed off if you're not immediately referred to a gynecologist and stuff, because there are conservative measures that can help. And actually, you don't want to have surgery unless you need it. And if other things improve that your GP can help you with, and that's probably the route to go down. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Hannah. And as ever with the podcast, I'll be putting full support links in the show notes. So to organisations like Endometriosis UK, IA, PMD, and also MIND in terms Mm -hmm. of PMDD. I'd love to talk to you as well about rage, because it's something that keeps coming up time and time again with listeners who have experienced tremendous anger in the postnatal period Mm -hmm. it's not something that I can relate to myself but it does seem to be a a thing postnatal rage can you talk to us about that what causes it and how it manifests and what can be done to sort of help people going through that well I don't have much experience personally with patients with postnatal rage not because i saying it doesn't exist because I understand it does but I see this a lot with premenstrual disorders and PMDD and I suspect it's the same thing that is going on there because our brains are profoundly affected by hormonal changes and we all have differing degrees of hormone sensitivity so the way our brains process the hormones or the breakdown products will react to them is going to be different so when we see this in women with PMDD and I suspect that there 
is similarity with the postnatal rage is when there's issues with the brain uh, dealing with the breakdown products of progesterone in particular. So there's something called allopragnanolone, which is a breakdown product. And normally this would produce a calming kind of sedative-like effect, but that doesn't happen in women with severe hormone sensitivity. In fact, it seems to induce kind of more anxiety and rage and things like that as well. So I think there's probably something going on on there and the way that the hormonal changes and that withdrawal of hormones as well. So it is quite a complex topic and I'm just trying to think how best to describe it without kind of confusing as well. Hormone disorders like PMDD are often to do with like steroid hormone withdrawal. So it's that big change, that big drop off that triggers those mood symptoms because it affects the other neurotransmitters in the brain. And the same thing happens postnatally. So you go from high levels of estrogen and progesterone to, to kind of they bottom out when you deliver the baby. And it will really depend whether you breastfeed or not when you, menstrual cycles commence and stuff, because if you're breastfeeding then there's often you know suppression of your menstrual cycle and you don't start having periods until you stop often but all of these things if you have got a brain that's primed to hormone sensitivity could trigger symptoms like rage and I mean there there have been drug trials looking at this and I think there's something in the states um which is looking at some of those molecules similar to allopragnolone, which is going to be used in treatment of things like postnatal mood disorder. They they did do something in PMDD. Unfortunately, it wasn't as successful as they hoped it would be, but there were some changes, but they weren't significant enough to say, yes, we should all be doing this essentially. But I think it's a real phenomenon. Again, I suppose it's going to be speaking with somebody who's an expert in hormone sensitivity. I mean, the way that I talk about managing premenstrual symptoms that are similar to the postnatal rage it's about one managing the kind of hormonal fluctuations so and that can be done in various ways whether it's it's with further suppression of hormones or is it adding hormones whether it's kind of in form of contraception or hormone therapy and the other thing is changing the brain's response to that so anything we can do to calm the autonomic nervous system down can be helpful so things like exercise appreciate that could be quite hard postnatally when you're dealing with lots of stuff and especially if you're feeling really really low um maybe um a psychiatric drug like SSRIs because that stabilizes the neurotransmitters again in the postnatal period as it does in the premenstrual period um anti-inflammatory diet and um, this isn't going to be enough in itself but it, all these things can kind of be supportive so kind of having a diet rich in plants and micronutrients things like meditation there was a study at University of Chicago looking at mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and it showed levels of inflammation in women with PMDD significantly decreased after a 16-week course of that. Wow. So all of these things can have a, they might feel like, oh, then what, what are they going to do? But they can have a profound effect. I think it's realistically, how can we help women to do these things when you're struggling with a newborn or if you're premenstrual and your moods are so low, how do you do the things that are going to help you? And I think then it's better you know, to seek the support of someone who can give you the medical support that then enables you to do the things you need to do in a self-care kind of way as well. Yeah. And with things like breathing exercises, mm-hmm. would that be helpful in terms of where you were talking about calming the nervous yeah. system? Certainly all of that stuff is, is going to be really helpful. I suppose sometimes the way it can be presented is, oh, just do a few breathing exercises and it will help. But actually, if we, if we go back to um, kind of looking at actually what happens is the feedback that your brain gets when you naturally slow your breathing down, it gives the signal that you're kind of safe. And so your general output kind of calms down and some of your physical symptoms can kind of get better as well. And then that has a knock on effect psychologically. So there is a reason why these things are recommended, but it's not always explained why. Um, It's funny. Yeah, I'd read things when I was trying to help myself and it would be like, go for a walk or breathe. And I recently trained as a children's anxiety coach. And when you actually learn the rationale behind it and how it can actually calm the amygdala response and yeah it it makes you realize like ah there is an actual point to it it's not just airy fairy take a few deep breaths and you'll feel better I know well I think that it's like when you talk about diet and lifestyle and something well everyone knows yeah exercise good for you should eat some fruits and veg but do we know why and I mean it's when you look at the reasons why it makes much more sense and in terms of dietary recommendations there's no postnatal diet there's no premenstrual diet or menopausal diet but there are dietary patterns associated with general better health in terms of well-being in the moment and long-term health and that's generally one that is rich in 
fruits, vegetables, you know, beans, pulses, whole grains, because that's an anti-inflammatory diet pattern. So inflammation is often behind these unpleasant symptoms at the cellular level. And so if we can do everything to kind of minimize that, that will help. But there are so many challenges there are in the postnatal period or in the premenstrual period. And it's easier said than done, I think, sometimes. But if people can understand why it's recommended, I think that goes halfway to helping. That statistic you were saying about the meditation, that's incredible to hear. And um, I was just going to say for any listeners who haven't necessarily come across it in season one of Blue Mondays, there is a special 15 minute loving kindness meditation that Poonam Dufa of Yes Mate created for listeners. And that is something that you can listen to at any time of the day. If you've never meditated before, you don't need to do anything. Just close your eyes and listen. Um, And one of the things that I really struggled very, very badly with when I had my PND was insomnia. Mm -hmm. And so, as you were saying, you also had terrible insomnia, Hannah. And I found that listening to something like a podcast late at night or in the middle mm-hmm. of the night when you're going through that panic of like, I've got to sleep and yeah. I can't sleep. Even if you can listen to it at that time, you know, it'll hopefully, as you say, calm the nervous system. And if you drop off to sleep while listening, even better, yeah. because it's just there to sort of help you. There's no right or wrong to meditating. It's just listening and being in the moment and listening to mm-hmm. the words. And um, I really hope that some of you out there get some sort of solace from doing it or, you know, a bit of a reset and a recharge. But it's incredible how at the mercy of the hormones we are, especially as as women. And, And one thing I noticed about when I was looking at your website is that you are pretty much fully booked for the next X months. And that goes to show how much need there is for helping women go through these experiences. Yeah, no, I know. And I think we're hugely underserved. And at the moment, I mean, it's not just to do with COVID because these issues were there before. But I think it's one of the problems is it's not recognised, I think, as to how many women are affected and how profound the symptoms can be and how debilitating because there's a lot of silence. And I think, again, there's still some stigma and taboo out there, particularly when it's to do with, I don't know, you know, menstrual related problems, birth, uh, you know, basically gynecological issues together with mental health. It's like a double whammy. And I think women are very good at kind of putting up with stuff, hiding stuff, masking stuff, and often not asking for help until it's too late. And when they do, I say not necessarily getting the right kind of support. And I think one of the real crying shame is that commissioners in the NHS don't seem to see the value in planning these services. If anything, they're kind of reducing access to things like menopausal health you know there are no real pre-menstrual clinics they kind of sneak in in, under general gynecology or menstrual clinics and in terms of kind of provision for perinatal psychiatry it's really inadequate particularly in the area where I am but I mean it varies hugely in different parts of the UK I mean most of the women I see they they come to see me because they just cannot get access elsewhere and they're desperate, but they often want to be referred back into the NHS. I was doing an NHS menopause and premenstrual clinic alongside a gynecologist for a year, but then they decommissioned the post. They said it wasn't needed, even though me and the gynecologist like, well, there isn't. And there's, there's, there was a huge waiting list. But I think it's just short-sighted because... The NHS want they want to see kind of immediate outcomes, and obviously these things don't things don't change overnight. And I don't think they recognise the repercussion for re-referrals everywhere else. So mm. a lot of premenstrual stuff ends up in psychiatry, whereas it, you know, really it should be we a lot of it we should be able to manage within the community and stuff. But psychiatry don't get that training most of the time in the UK as well. In menopause, women are inappropriately referred to cardiology, to rheumatology, to you know, musculoskeletal services. And actually, if everybody could kind of take a holistic viewpoint and think, okay, what's actually going on here? We don't need to do all of this stuff. And actually, we could manage this stuff better. But yeah, I don't think that if they could realize ultimately in the long run, they'd save money and time and lives. (laughs) And, you know, women would do a lot better. So yeah, unfortunately, there is a big demand. And I wish I could see more women. And I know my colleagues who do similar clinics are the same um so yeah do you have any advice for women who are listening and just suddenly for the first time feeling wow I think this might be something that's affecting me what advice would you give to them 
I think look at the IAPMD website and also the Primary Care Women's Health Forum. You go onto the website and there's either a link for healthcare professional or for patients. We've got like patient information leaflet on there that talks about things that you can do to help yourself and maybe how to go to approach your GP. But really what you need to do is start tracking symptoms. So you can do that via an app. You can do it by a paper diary, but have some clear things showing that your, your symptoms change or your well-being changes because that we didn't really touch on PME, which is the premenstrual exacerbation, mm. which is slightly yes, different. Yes, yeah. And would need slightly different management. And that's where underlying disorders, so you may have a chronic depression or anxiety, but it could be something like migraine or asthma or something or epilepsy that gets worse in the luteal phase. Then... Um, you can see that things get worse but and then improve with your period again that needs to be picked up and managed appropriately but the key thing is tracking your symptoms I suppose arming yourself with the knowledge and having a little bit more understanding knowing about the guidelines that are out there I know it's hard because I find it hard as a doctor myself to go to a professional and say I know there are guidelines but you know if there's ways you can do that without kind of you're not going to cause offence or anything like that, but just say, you know, even if you say something like, I understand there are guidelines, and if they have the name of those guidelines, their GP, if they're not familiar with it, can look it up. I know some people should get really disheartened when GPs look things up, but to be honest, there are so many guidelines you're supposed to know, and we just can't keep them all in our head. So if you have a GP who wants to help, even if they're not that knowledgeable at that point, I think stick with that GP because that will help their learning and then they can help support you as well. Brilliant. And if we could just touch on PME mm. for a moment before we wrap up. So that is premenstrual exacerbation. And am I right in thinking that is where you have an existing symptom that worsens during yes. your menstrual cycle? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we're looking at PMDD, I, I know we talked a bit about the overlap with things like depression and things like that, which can occur. But if you're looking at it classically, you would be symptom free for the first two weeks of your cycle. So when your period is there and then symptoms will start at some point after ovulation. So either immediately or sometimes it's a bit later and then they get better. So for half the month, essentially, you're symptom free for up to two weeks a month. You're debilitated by the symptoms with PME. You're probably never 100 percent symptom free. So you could have, I don't know, OCD. You could have, I don't know, a bad depression or anxiety. And as I said, there can be physical symptoms, so things like migraine as well. But you notice that these markedly change in the lead up to your period. Then the issue is, you know, actually, this is what we call premenstrual exacerbation of an underlying disorder. And although things never can entirely improve, most of the time it may be much more manageable when you're not in that luteal phase. So the way that that is treated slightly differently to PMDD is that you first look at the underlying condition and make sure that your treatment is optimized for that. If it is, and there's nothing else that can be done or added, actually, that's when you'd kind of probably go more down the PMDD pathway and look at that and things like suppressing the menstrual cycle and, and looking at the other things we've discussed. One of the things I don't think we did talk about was... um psychological support so mm. cbt and things are recommended in the guidelines i think again one of the issues is access and there aren't that many women or psychologists who specialize in this area but it can be incredibly helpful to get support from somebody who does have knowledge in this area because if you can kind of help to train your brain to have you know or to respond in different ways to, to the negative messages you're given at certain points during the month, that can be hugely instrumental in recovery and, and managing symptoms long term. Thank you. I just feel so educated on the subject now. And <laughs> my heart goes out to anybody that's been affected by these things. And when you were talking about the PMDD symptoms, I, I just wanted to weep because for so many years after the PND, I would still go to work and just feel desperate for so much of the time and and realizing that that might have been to do with my cycle because you question yourself don't you and you think am I going absolutely mad and why can't I just cope with life in a way that everybody else seems to be able to cope yeah no it's, it's tragic isn't it and I think unfortunately you're not alone in that because I mean I struggled for so long I think one of my the issues was with me that I never had the regular periods and I couldn't sometimes disentangle what was the endo and what was the more premenstrual symptoms but I the do remember feeling utterly hopeless and we see that and, and like you said you didn't have that experience of rage and I thankfully didn't but I felt like I had everything else some women you know that the rage is the worst thing for them and I I'm so I wish I could 
kind of give you more certainty in terms of the postnatal side, but I can only think that it is driven in the same way that, you know, the same kind of underlying mechanism, because it's certainly something we see and it is to do with things like that steroid hormone withdrawal and the brain's response to hormonal changes. Um, but yeah, we need there to be more awareness and, and amongst clinicians, as, but, th- but there is help out there. I d- so I hope people kind of get that message, even though I, I know it can be quite, it's a, quite a complex and there is no easy answer, but generally things can improve. So. And it's, it's worth sort of unpicking to try and find out what, what's going on. And I'm sure this has been a very reassuring lesson. So thank you. And if you are in particular sort of affected by postnatal rage, please do get in touch with me because I'll do my best to find an expert in that area so we could do like a proper Q&A with them because I can imagine it's a very, very hard thing to to go through. And also, you know, even more taboo because people don't speak about those things and women are never expected to be or allowed to show rage. No, exactly. Or anger, let alone when you're a parent. So um, please don't feel that you are alone and it's not you. It's it's something that's happening to you to cause that rage. So you mustn't feel guilt about it, but I will do my best to find somebody who can advise on that subject. But for now, thank you so much, Hannah. That's been it's such an incredible conversation with you. And uh, I really appreciate you taking out time out of your incredibly busy schedule. And um, I'll obviously put links to your your website as well if somebody needed to get in, in touch with you direct. But uh, there are some links on there as well. I'm in the process of updating the website. So in the next by the end of the year, it should be the new shiny updated one because it's quite old at the moment. And putting more links in so people can link directly to things like the PMS, PMDD guidelines, Brilliant. things like the DAISY network, which is for POI and everything like that could help a bit more. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of Blue Mum Days, please like and subscribe. It really does make the difference in helping other people find it. And that means helping more parents. Thank you.